Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and I'm here with Audrey Waters. And it is the 17th of December, 2011, and we're doing our weekly podcast on educational technology. It's another thought-provoking conversation. <laughs> Thank you for that compliment earlier this week. No, this is great. And this is, I'm excited to talk about um, the um, what I wrote this week. There wasn't a lot of news per se, but anytime you're working through these year-end retrospectives like I have been, it's lots of interesting sort of things to think through. Yes, and this week you finish your trends series. Yeah. How was how has that been? You know, it's well, it's been gru- <laughs> it's been grueling. No, it's been fascinating to go back through and read um, everything from the beginning of the year. I think that the news cycle, particularly the technology news cycle, tends to move very quickly, and things happen, and we sort of um, they, they, there's a lot of buzz, and then we all move on. Things get forgotten very quickly, and so it was very helpful for me to go back through month by month, sort of through these broad, you know, these broad trends and categories and look closely sort of what's, what's happened good, you know, good and bad this, this year. So you made predictions last year. Are you going to make predictions in January? I am going to make some predictions. (laughs) I can't wait for that show. (laughs) How fun. Okay. Well, let's start with Code Academy. Yes. Which is not Code Academy, right? Which right? is what prompted me, sort of, to write to write this story in part. Someone posted on a Facebook. There was a Facebook comment saying, uh, "Why isn't the media paying attention to Code Academy?" There's been a lot of talk lately about, um, you know, minority um, tech entrepreneurs, and um, you know, that's just funny that here's here's this group out of Chicago, founded by two African American guys, and no one's written about it. And then someone said, oh, we have written about Code Academy, and Audrey hates it, and it's awful. <laughs> I thought, oh, no, wait, there's two separate things. So I took a look at Code Academy, which is, I think it actually addresses a lot of the issues that I had with Code Academy, an online tool. And so far as Code Academy actually is this face-to-face um, learning program that's really project-based. It's designed to get sort of folks with very limited computer skills up and running with programming but based on based on a project that they actually want to build. So you come to the program um, and you're you're sort of working towards your own your own goal. So this isn't new. I mean yeah. independent courses for programming have existed for a long time. What what's the deeper story here? Why is this valuable? Well I think that I mean I think we're starting to see a lot of folks recognize that some of the traditional some of the traditional ways in which you are where we're accustomed to attaining knowledge, right, uh, particularly or skills, um, aren't, aren't really working anymore. And this is a trend that I looked at in detail this week, too. But I think that's particularly true when it comes to programming, right? So you can take a computer science, you can, you know, get a computer science degree, but that doesn't really necessarily mean that you're sort of learning the most, the latest and the most important and the most useful web technology uh, tools, and so I think that there's become an increased demand for sort of faster, um, faster programs instead of a four-year or a two-year degree. Um, and just I think there's just a lot of interest in people gaining skills that they see as very marketable, very useful, very practical. Yeah, I, I was intrigued by this because it raised so many issues that sort of get addressed in, in other posts you have this week. Um, for me, the deeper story was that we're not actually doing much teaching of programming right. in the K-12 level. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, th- that's that's a story that I wrote this week. And I was actually surprised, like, 
sometimes I'm really shocked with the reactions that my stories get. This was a, I've, um, I wrote something based on a really terrific article in um, THE Journal uh, this month that looks at some of the deep reasons why, why in fact, uh, computer science and programming, but computer science will say that, isn't part of the required K-12 curriculum. And to me, it sort of feels like a, like a duh. Uh, we, we, we need to be teaching these skills, not just digital literacy, as in how to use software, but really thinking through, um, sort of looking under the hood, what does it mean to actually build, think through um, programming, learn computational thinking, think about logic. And it's something that we're just not, we're just not teaching. And I was surprised that the reaction from a lot of people was, people push back and say, no, it shouldn't be a requirement. Why would we want to require computer science? It's not necessary. Um, we already do enough. Kids just need to learn um, how to use computers, but they don't actually need to learn how to program. So if we weren't doing such a pathetic job in this area, I mean, you might even give that argument some credence, but you know, the fact that we teach proprietary programs, we don't really teach open source programs largely, it just feels like this is a huge blind spot for us. Yeah, I mean, and again, as, you know, as, as things push forward and we find that, you know, again, the, the sort of the traditional um, learning institutions aren't meeting learners' needs, right? People are going to turn elsewhere to find these skills if they aren't at sort of public school, sort of the K-12 public school, if they're not happening at college, then I think we're going to find more and more of these, um, whether they're nonprofits or private companies, um, online, uh, cl- online classes that are stepping in to fill this, fill this need. You know, Seymour Papert really carried this torch, and Gary Steger, you know, sort of continues to carry it. Um, you know, the computer science course in high school, at least, or, or K-12 arena. Does this have anything to do with the teachers or the lesson material? Does it even relate to kind of the commercialism of how lesson plans get done for computer science? Oh, that's an interesting. I hadn't ever thought of that. I would say in some ways it's, um, I think that it's one of these, uh, I mean, I think that there's just, there is a fear on the part of teachers, I think, to teach computer science, particularly if they aren't programmers themselves, right? So there's, um, I think that there's still a great fear about what it means to, to, to take on a subject like, um, like computer science if you, if you weren't a computer science major in college. Um, but I, and I hadn't actually thought about the curriculum. There's, there are tons of great tools available to get kids um, on board with, with programming. I mean, Scratch, Scratch is the obvious and the excellent example here. Um, but I think there's still a really a, actually a fear on the part of educators to to take this on. It also feels like there's a little bit of a deeper entrepreneurial story here. When I did my interview series on open source software and education, I interviewed a lot of the sort of luminaries of the open source world. And, and so the ultimate conclusion we came to was that none of them had actually learned what they did through their formal education. <laughs> Are, now, in the same way that open source folks were kind of the canaries in the coal mine for the internet and the tech industry. Is it, are they maybe also canaries in the coal mine with regard to thinking about how we learn and how independent or dependent we are? That's, that's really interesting. And I would say that the, the other piece of, of the social, of the open source um, development is that it is so community driven, right? That, that this isn't just about one individual, um, you know, sort of 
alone working through um, working through their learning. And this is definitely something that requires people contribute to a body of knowledge, support one another, think through um, challenge and, and uh, problem solve and troubleshoot with and for each other, which is um, I think makes makes the open source a great model to think about learning communities um, that are building things as opposed to just sort of individual practitioners um, on their own, isolated right. on their own. And very much an apprenticeship model, mm-hmm. which goes to speak to, we'll get there, you know, sort of <laughs> STEM and hands-on learning yes. you know, and, and some other things. Um, so Douglas Rushkoff also talked about kind of a deeper issue here, which is the degree to which we are programming or we're programmed. And, and how real an argument is that, that if we don't understand the backbone of how programs are getting written, that we're going to just end up being consumers of technology that others create where we don't understand the implications? I think that that's very, I mean, I think that that's very true. And, and I, I would add here that I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that we should have sort of eight-year-olds all learn how to, you know, learn Python or Ruby. And by the time that you sort of graduated from high school, that you're able to, um, you know, that everyone sort of tr- tracked on um, a computer science sort of, or or even a, a even broadly a STEM career, but I'm thinking you know I'm thinking the analogy might be to to cars. I mean certainly um, cars have certainly got a lot more computerized as well. But there's a notion that you sort of have a general sense of how the engine works, right? And you might not know how to to fix the radiator, but you but you know what the radiator is there for. And I think that I think that the same thing holds true as the, the new vehicles that we're riding in, right, are computers, that this is technology. This te- the technology is, is our sort of communication, transportation um, future. And if, if we can't look under the hood of and at least have a, some sort of idea of what's going on, I mean, I think that we're, we're bound, to be, uh, bound to be taken advantage of in a myriad of ways where we really do become sort of um, it's also it's the program or be programmed, but it's also sort of you are the product as well, right? We get sold things, and we get we become we become users of tools that are very much about us um, becoming the product that's sold in turn to to advertisers. This is so fascinating. Yes, and as addition, as we continue to look toward sort of Web three or the semantic web or advanced decision making uh, by the the programs. Um, are we aware of how much that's taking place? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the PISA as the Sputnik moment. Nobody I knew really took that seriously, <laughs> right? When when President Obama said we were at a Sputnik moment, uh, why didn't that resonate with us? Well, you know the the for me invoking the Sputnik moment seemed like such a strange. It seemed like a very strange. Um, a historical illusion, partially because I mean the you know the Sputnik, Sputnik was I think as the story goes sort of a wake up call to the United States that that the Soviet Union was um, triumphing um, in the space race and that we needed to sort of step up our game in terms of science, um, technology, engineering, math in terms of STEM, right? So we put a lot of resources into um, science and technology, but it also was a military. Um, and nationalistic endeavor. And so I think for that reason, sort of when you invoke Sputnik to talk about education, for me at least, I'm like, wow, is this like a, is this a a cold, like why are we using sort of Cold War terminology to talk about um, 
the future of learning? For me, this raised an interesting question about the proper role of government funding. Mm -hmm. Um, My brother would say that the government investing in research is often the wrong place to be. There's already an enormous amount of research of really good uh, either knowledge or, or product that's been created. The difficulty is getting people to take the existing research and actually put it into practice. Is that true as well? I mean, are we when we when we say we need funding on these new educational technologies, are we missing the boat of the you know enormous amount of understanding we have of how kids learn that that may or may not be related to technology, and we're sort of looking for a silver bullet? Well, I mean, I would say it may or may not be related to technology, and may or may you know may or may not fill into the grant the kinds of um, you know funding grant proposals that the government is looking to underwrite it may or may not be the kinds of things that um, attract, you know, attract resources um, at that scale. Um, thinking about sort of which, which sorts of companies would do, do well to compete for, um, you know, DARPA dollars. Um, it's, it is, you know, some giant technology companies. It's probably not sort of um, an upstart um, engineer or an educator necessarily who's going to be, you know, able to tap into some of this some of these resources that the government's making available okay so um, there's also this connection between stem and jobs in the economy which is kind of a common narrative we hear and and one of the criticisms the pushback of that narrative has been that uh, we're not actually um, not filling those jobs. Our economy is not languishing because those jobs aren't being filled. It's just that our students may not necessarily be the ones who are prepared to step into those jobs. How does this tie together? Yeah, actually, I think that, that that's one of the things that sort of fascinates me, you know, looking at the economy this year, sort of nationwide, worldwide, I should say, um, the global the global economic downturn, and then looking at, at the thriving technology industry, um, and thinking about the ways in which one part of the sector, which is a demand for these very, you know, for um, for programming skills, for high tech skills, for STEM skills, is really doing well, um, and is sort of demanding more labor. And I'm not sure that we have sort of the right people um, available to fill those jobs. And I'm not sure that some of the people who are out of work. Um, are sort of retrainable in a way to, to fill those jobs either. Yeah, I was left feeling like we're doing a little bit of the skipping of a step thinking, mm-hmm. which we determine the outcome we want, which is a more vibrant economy. So we we try and do things that would that we think will create a more vibrant economy. We miss we miss the intermediate step, right? So if 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 it's a shift from A trying to get immediately to C without going through B. To me, what is B, right? Uh, how do you really help people? And if we have low graduation rates, if we don't have participation in um, in these classes, if we have high dropout rates in STEM and computer science classes and medical classes, what's the B? And I'm still not quite sure, but it feels as though we're focusing on the end result rather than on the process to get there. Yeah, I mean, and I would add to that too that although the technology sector is booming, sort of the the rest of STEM, right? the science, engineering, and math. I mean, it's not, it's not as though we're having sort of this, there's not a, a national shortage in, um, um, you know, bio, 
you know, biology and bioengineering in the same way that there are, I think a, there is a perceived shortage in the tech sector. Um, but I, I think that when we think about sort of STEM futures, it goes back to what we were just, you know, we're preparing kids for a, a sort of a more STEM oriented future. It goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, which is the way in which technology in particular is really permeating our lives um, so utterly that it seems remiss for us to not help students think through what that means, right? Whether or not they sort of end up working as um, programmers or police officers, right? There's still going to be um, a higher demand for technology skills in the future. And the hands-on learning piece is a big part of this story, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think so too. And I think that that's partly, partially why we're finding um, kids... Uh, you know, why kids aren't drawn to these, well, I mean, I think that's why they aren't offered, why some of these classes aren't offered is the, 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 the impulse to do a lot of standardized, you know, to do a lot of testing um, creates less time in the classroom for these hands-on experimentation, which is something that I think draws people to, you know, draws people to these areas. So in the last couple of weeks, I've discovered an app on my tablet, which is an Android tablet, that has really significantly shifted my productivity. It's a mind mapping app called Thinking Space. That in the last day or two was actually just bought out by an, another organization called MindJet. But the but I've done mind mapping before, but on the tablet it became a whole new experience. In, in fact even an even better experience. So how has the Edu Creations whiteboard app done the same kind of thing or undergone the same transition? The Edu Creations app is interesting. I've seen a couple of there's there's a number of other companies that are um, building similar similar tools to this. And so what what this allows you to do um, is that you can hit record and you can sort of narrate and then manipulate with your finger, draw objects, pull in pictures, and create a little video tutorial on your tablet um, with your both your voice and the animation that you sort of um, and and writing that you've done you've done with your finger. Um, the interesting thing about Educrations is I think that they're actually stepping up the game with the technology. Um, this is uh, although they're sort of late to the game, there are a, there are a lot of bells and whistles on this that make this pretty cool. For example, it, it'll automatically um, pause the rec the voice recording while you go and grab a photo and help you know position photos. Uh, in your tutorial. Um, it's also HTML5, so it's going to work across across devices. That being said, the you know, this is something that we've said again and again and again, which is sort of what's your business model? How are you going to make money? You're giving away this app now. Um, what what happens down the road? And what happens down the road with videos that people have made, you know, if this company does go away. Well, it reminded me of Jing in some way. Is that mm -hmm. an appropriate connection? I mean, the idea that you could actually do some things and record them, create a little to, a, a short, quick tutorial on a device that's very handy. Right. I mean, it's it's not quite screen capture, right? Because you're still limited to the whiteboard, um, uh, the sort of the whiteboard app itself. But it, I mean, I think it is a gesture towards just that sort of thing, making these very short, um, very short video tutorials. It's a really easy, very easy tool to use okay so uh, your next post had a snarky finish and I've been miss I didn't realize I was <laughs> missing the snarky endings and so this is YouTube for schools 
And it's uh, and my question was, is this the right solution to filtering issues? Yeah, I mean, I, this is a tough one for me because I feel as though yes, I mean, yay, thank you, you know, thank you, Google, for addressing what is um, a huge sort of a huge pain point for teachers and students. Right? It's that YouTube, which is really, I know there are I know there are alternatives. I know there's TeacherTube. I know there are other places that you can host videos, but YouTube is the most ubiquitous, easy to use, best video sharing tool available right now. And it's blocked at almost all schools. Um, we'll find that their, their filtering software you know, uh, blocks YouTube. And so what Google has done is create a special channel that redirects educational content, and you have to imagine I'm making air quotes there, educational content so that um, so the schools can just unblock that, unblock that subdomain and students can still have access to, to video material. I made a set of, I mentally made a set of questions up as I was reading the article, and then you asked everyone at the end, right, <laughs> what is educational and what is not? You know, who decides what is educational? Right. I mean, and I think that this is, this is where, where a, a good move on the part of, of Google, right? And frankly, um, a move that they have to make considering how important video ha is becoming in schools, right? Google has to, I think, has to do something here. Um, but you're right. Like, what, what, what counts as video? When they, when they wrote up their, um, their, their uh, news announcement about it, Google said sort of, you know, no funny kitty videos and no music videos. And I think, well, I mean, <laughs> what's wrong with funny cat videos? I mean, the, the internet is founded on funny cat videos. And, and really, what's wrong with music videos, too? Um, well, more than that, we know stories ourselves of how learning has taken place through the uh, copying of, um, you know, musical song or performance, right. you know, over generation, gen video generation to video generation. I guess I left the story feeling very much like the, what we're beginning to understand is how much we've constrained what we see as educational. Yes, I think so too. And I think, and I think the, and the flip side of that is how much our fear of quote, inappropriate material on the internet. Um, and I realize there are sort of legal, um, legal, um, restrictions to this, but our fear about kids finding inappropriate material on the internet really closes down a lot of opportunities to, I think, move, move forward in a smart way of thinking about what, you know, how learning and how accessibility um, to content operates. So tell us your snarky ending. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Google said, I mean, I asked them, I said, you know, how does a teacher get, how does a teacher get their content approved, right? What if you really do want to use a funny cat video um, in your class? And Google said to me, well, they just need to ask their local, you know, their school IT um, administrator to grant access to that video, which has been the excuse that we always hear about filtering. Like, oh, is Ning blocked at your school? Just ask the school IT administrator. Is, you know, is Facebook blocked? Just ask the IT administrator. And it's, um, it's not a, it's not an answer. It's not a sufficient uh, <laughs> answer. I, I laughed out loud. <laughs> I don't okay. know if Google did, but so uh, there's a guy named Chris Avenir at Ryerson University, a student at Ryerson University, three or four years ago, who took over a Facebook study group, 
and was brought up on 200 and something academic charges for actually running a study group when the university felt that it was not appropriate. You highlight the fact that Facebook is piloting an actually to you exclusive kind of group project or program. So uh, how, how far have we come in three years? Well, this, I mean, I think, you know, this is, this will be an interesting one to watch, partly because I think that we've seen, there's a number of um, schools and a number of startups too, that are really recognizing that like it or not, all of the bad, you know, all the sort of bad press that, that Facebook gets, um, that, that students really do gravitate there um, to support each other, both socially, of course, but also academically. And I think that um, people are um, studying together on Facebook. People are using Facebook to talk about their school, um, you know, their school experience, their, uh, school student life, if you will. I mean, and remember, this is where Facebook was initially founded, was at Harvard, and it was very much a school, academic life sort of focused thing um, before. And now, this, now Facebook is sort of, sort of going back towards that and thinking about how how can they make tools that uh, schools. Um, schools and students will be able to use to, to sort of talk about their social and academic world um, just within the Facebook within the Facebook site. Uh, you know, I I'm probably a little too distant from Facebook and from being in school to have felt emotion or passion about that. But this led me down a path to thinking about uh, Google Sites and the integration of Google Plus into Google Sites. And my brain started to explode. You know, the ability for individual educators or classrooms or schools to start creating um, sort of homegrown social solutions for their class or school felt phenomenal to me. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that's, you know, that's one of the big uh, differentiators there, I would say, between um, the, the Google Sites sort of tool and an ecosystem around it, and then Facebook, right? At the end of the day, Facebook is very much a walled garden. And if you what you create on Facebook, whether um, in in a special academic group or on your own, you know, in a group that you make yourself, um, isn't something that's going to necessarily be available to to others. It's not going to um, um, it's not going to be indexed um, on the web. Um, I think it's a you know, we've we've been thinking a lot this year about um, how the learning management system might be changing, and I have to wonder if we're going to lose out again if we just put you know put uh, put material behind another another wall. Yeah, I, I I my brain is literally exploding on this Google Sites and and Google Plus. I just think the potential is phenomenal. Um, okay, so I think we're to trend number eight here. And if you covered four trends this week. This one is the higher education bubble. And, um, and, and is this a compelling story, but also a red herring? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm actually, I don't, I think that in some ways, when, you know, when, when Peter Thiel first uh, talked about the, the higher education bubble earlier this year, I felt it was, I felt that his framing of it was very much a red herring, right? So this is um, this is the PayPal co-founder who uh, this year announced a fellowship program giving 20 kids under the age of 20 $100,000 to drop out of school and um, do whatever they want, you know, become entrepreneurs, but do whatever they, do whatever they want. 
Um, and he framed it, uh, Thiel framed this in terms of the higher education bubble, right? That the opportunity cost is too high now. Um, kids are going into too much debt. They're wasting too much time and they'd be better served not going to college and just building their own businesses. And to me, that seems silly. Um, that seems to, um, and which I found sort of uh, the proof to me was when Peter Thiel chose his 20 uh, students and they were virtually all from Ivy League schools and they were, uh, I think there were only two women. I mean, he definitely chose, he chose from a population that, yeah, sure, doesn't need to go to school. But I think that that's not, um, not, not the case um, in all um, in all circumstances. But then as the year progressed and I saw the Occupy Wall Street movement really take off and the student loan debt became such a cornerstone of people talking about the actual, the real burdens that people face in terms of being able to, um, well, to become entrepreneurs, sure, but just being able to sort of make, make their, you know, pay their bills um, because of the student loan debt. I do feel as though we are having going to have to really think carefully about why we go to why people go to college, why we go into so far into debt, um, and what it's what it's worth. So the the core of the story, the, the fact that it's very expensive to go to college, even if you're not going to an Ivy League school, and that it may not actually be be providing you with the right skill set for our culture and society in the job market right now. There's a lot of truth to that. The solution piece of dropping out and starting your own business probably only really applies to the you know the very small minority who are ready and prepared for that, <laughs> who right. already kind of have the, right. the, the degree cachet or whatever to do so. But clearly there is an issue here uh, about the cost of schools, and it, it felt like you kind of addressed that. Well, right. and I think that, you know, I think that we're seeing, I mean, it's a bit like what we started, you started this podcast, you know, talking about Code Academy and talking about these other opportunities for people to learn programming in technology skills in particular. And I think the advent of the, you know, the Open Badges Project from Mozilla um, is another signal that, that, thing, that we're starting to think through um, how accreditation works, right? How are we going to, how are we going to reward people? for the work, the informal learning that they've done, or maybe not reward, but how, how are people going to signal that they've done this informal learning um, if they don't have a degree? Is there a degree to which we've, we fall into a trap that's kind of a common trap, which is believing the world works logically when oftentimes it works in very <laughs> other ways, and believing that going to college is about acquiring knowledge and developing a skill set and getting a job when, when a lot of that may just be the people you know and the good old boy network and the university alumni association, you know, to some degree, are, are we going to maybe see a shakeout where schools that still provide that kind of non-logical but quantifiable value will be able to continue to charge, but others won't? That's, I mean, I think that, you know, if you look at the history of, right, the MIT Open Courseware, that was sort of part of the rationale that the faculty made 10 years ago, which is we can give away the content of the courses and it's not going to matter. People are still going to want to come to MIT. They're going to want the degree, obviously, but they're going to want the sort of experience. They're going to want the student experience. They're going to want the, you know, um, time with faculty. They're going to want to have these opportunities to network with each other. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think that, that that's actually something that 
universities will continue to offer. They'll offer access to libraries, they'll offer access to sort of research facilities, but I think we're starting to see other institutions that might fill some of those gaps or, you know, some of those uh, roles for, for some people. Yeah, and interestingly, Code Academy is not cheap. And no. as, you po- as you pointed out last week, most of the users of the open courseware material at MIT are actually MIT students. Right. Right. Fa- fascinating. <laughs> okay, so Stanford has this online education experiment. How many people s- participated in the first open course? Yeah, this is, this is actually um, mind-blowing. But um, some uh, over 100,000 people, over 120,000 people, I believe, initially signed up for the artificial intelligence class. And although most of them have dropped out, there's still some 35,000 that have completed the class that are doing the, 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 they're doing the weekly exercises, that are taking the tests, that are watching the videos, that are participating in the online version of the class. I think it's, I mean, I, and, they'll, and for those who, um, who complete the class, they're going to get a, they won't get college credit, but they will get a letter from the, from the two professors, um, from Peter Norvik and Sebastian Thrun, saying that they've successfully completed the class. And interestingly, I read uh, this week as well that the, the, the informal learners in this class are actually doing better than the Stanford students. You know, I am not a litmus test for the value of ideas. I know there are things I don't get that end up being brilliant, but I, I don't really understand where Stanford would be going with this. Yeah, well, this is, I mean, and I don't know either, you know, again, thinking about MIT, I mean, Stanford, Stanford does have, Stanford isn't part of the Open Courseware Consortium. Um, Stanford does have some open education classes that they offer. Um, And so I'm not, I'm not actually sure what their, what their plan is with this either, because I don't actually think it's part of that lineage of open education. I think they're doing something different. Um, I also heard that some of the best students got recruitment letters for the spin-off company that the professors <laughs> are founding. So, I mean, I really don't, I mean, I don't mean to, you know, I don't mean to be flippant here, but I think that there are other economic um, factors at play that I know, I'm not sure we're sort of seeing the big picture yet of what Stanford's doing. Interesting. Okay, so for trend number nine, top ed tech trends of 2011, your trend is open. And why aren't you patting yourself on the back for this? Well, I mean, I think, for one thing, I think it's an easy prediction. It was an easy prediction to make to say that 2011 will see more, um, you know, more open content, more open research, or excuse me, more open education resources, more open source tools, open data. Um, I think that that was sort of an easy, I think that was sort of an easy trend to predict. Um, and so I don't feel like I get full credit and I don't think I get full credit either because it seems like sort of a mixed bag. I mean, we've seen some, we have seen some good news this year. We have seen, you know, uh, funding, for example, federal funding for, um, open education resources for community colleges. But at the same time, we've seen sort of funding taken away. Um, we've seen, we're seeing the publishers, uh, publishing companies really scramble to adopt to the to adapt to um, new business models around uh, digital content. And so I'm just not, I just don't feel as though open as an adjective gets to sort of march forward unchallenged or uncontested. 
So I think I've talked about the fact that I gave a session at the O'Reilly Open Source Conference and at the Open Education Conference sort of on why openness isn't working in education. And for me, the flashpoint or the sort of the easy marker here is this Chrome Firefox issue. Yeah. Right. We're all for openness as long as it's the most effective or efficient way to do something. But then, you know, sort of I, I'm a heavy Chrome user and I consider myself a huge supporter of openness. But I use Chrome most of the time and I don't use Firefox. So are there sort of cognitive social realities around openness that we're going to have to kind of grapple with as we realize it's not just we're not just built to to take the high ground. And no, I think I mean I think that that's I think that that's true and I think that you know it also gets complicated when um you think of companies like Google who I think um and I say this as a you know as a, as a big fan of of Google but that I think you that Google wields the term open um very broadly, and I think likes to associate Chrome, even the Chrome browser, which isn't open source the same way that Firefox is. I think you'll get pushback saying, well, Google is open. Google's open source, right? Google, Android's open source. Google's open. And so I think that we're sort of seeing that that term is really complicated, is really quite complicated and used, um, used in ways that, you know, make Richard Stallman very unhappy. I was just going to bring Richard up because, yeah. of course, we all I – mean, not all. I really appreciate Richard's role in the free software movement, yes. and I feel like so much of what he said on a philosophical, pedagogical level was really, really valuable. But, of course, that wasn't the message that took off. It was the open source message. Yes. Right, and and so the reality of life is that that sort of deeper core message is not necessarily the one that's going to take the day. It's interesting too because this year, you know, one of the first, uh, the beginning of the year, I went to Educon, and one of the sessions that has stuck with me throughout the whole year was one that Alec Koros, um, and I can't remember who, I think maybe Dean Dresky was the other person that led it, but they were, the the talk was on this sort of the ethical. Um, sort of this ethical requirement for sharing and the importance of openness, broadly speaking, in education. And I think that that is, I think that is a really valuable impulse, and I think that it is something in education that a lot of people do hold dearly. This idea of, of you know, sharing knowledge is partially why we're drawn to education. Um, but I think even in education, we're seeing just as that, just what you described, that that openness only gets us only gets us so far. We have competing metaphors. One is the Thomas Jefferson candle lighting metaphor, you know, that education is about lighting candles, spreading knowledge, and that the room grows brighter as everybody shares their knowledge. And the other, as David Wiley points out, is the bumblebee. You know, where when you when you sting somebody else, you lose your stinger and you die, right? And and they they compete the sense of being open and everybody benefits versus having to be careful and to make sure you get your own benefit. And yeah. we see this in our financial models. We see it in our political models. Very interesting. Uh, the no brainer for me is Brazil and and the message from Brazil of anything that's publicly funded, government funded, has to be openly licensed. And this is what Cable Green is pushing right now for yes. Creative Commons. And I think it's, this is a no-brainer. Yeah, I think that this is fascinating too. And of course, but of course, that um, 
despite all despite all of the lobbying efforts on behalf of 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 Creative Commons and the great work that they do that we saw this year, you know, language sneak into a House Appropriations bill that would strip you know strip funding for for open content. So I think that you know that I, I mean and we're looking at you know looking at it's not quite the same thing, but looking at the SOPA. Um, the Stop Online Privacy Act, the legislation that was debated in front of uh, Congress this week. I mean, I think that there are definitely forces in place that are very concerned about their about proprietary content, proprietary information, proprietary technology that are working hard to make sure that things that the future isn't open. Well, they're working hard to ensure their own profitability. Right. So this is where we kind of kind of make a tie, which is Creative Commons, Larry Lessig, and now his sort of hacking at the roots movement, mm-hmm. right? And this whole idea of, you know, what's really driving decision making in Washington? And, you know, to what degree are fi- vested financial interests actually uh, in many ways still calling the shots? Yeah. Okay, which does bring us to your last trend. A little bit of a, I was a little proud of that segue, right? (laughs) Okay, so the last trend is the business of ed tech. Um, So Clay Shirky talks about kind of the period of time after the advent of the printing press in which there was chaos. And a lot of the sort of institutionalized ways we think about uh, the book and uh, uh, reading and writing, you know, evolved over a period of time that, that, uh, but didn't sort of flower in full bloom right there at, you know, once the printing press was invented. So we seem to be in this period of chaos and and especially as it relates to uh, kind of commercial versus public versus open versus closed. So tell us about this business of ed tech story. Yeah, this is, I mean, I think that this has been, this has been a crazy year. I mean, I start off this story talking about sort of my own career path, and this has actually been a crazy year for technology journalism. Um, sort of not to, not to sort of go too inside baseball here, but um, a lot of the major technology sort of uh, blogs have had um, all sorts of, all sorts of sort of scandals, acquisitions, hires, fires, takeovers, departures. Um, and I, in some ways, it feels as though it's it's this craziness that reflects really a very booming time for the tech industry. Um, I mean, the number of you know, Apple became the most valuable com- company in the world this year, and um, I think that that's really significant. They're more it, valu- not an open company either, <laughs> right? And and but more valuable than oil, right? More valuable than Exxon Mobil. So we've reached the point now where technology is more valuable than um, the industrial. I would say this is sort of high tech versus the industrial, the um, industrial world, and so or industrial period. And so I think that seeing all of this attention and excitement and money in the technology sector um, has made it a sort of a crazy year, and that's definitely bubbled out into education technology which has long been sort of something that, at least in Silicon Valley, investors and entrepreneurs all sort of think, oh, we don't really want to get involved with education technology. It's selling to schools is awful. The technology is boring. The tech, you know, the technology is not good. People don't care. And this year that really shifted. Um, a lot of interest in, a lot of investment, a lot of new, um, new organizations to sort of support entrepreneurship, 
support engineering efforts in education technology, um, and a lot of people trying to to think about how they're going to build new products and and build new companies and make money. And and that produces a fair number of sort of intriguing dilemmas, right? You know, private profits, corporate influence budget cuts in schools. I mean, yeah. it feels as though we're very much in a place where it's very hard to kind of imagine how these play out well. Does any of that reflect that we might be asking the wrong questions? Well, I mean, I have to wonder. I mean, sometimes I feel as though we, we uh, particularly when it comes to technology and education, that we do get worked up sort of about the wrong things. Um, you know, when we talk about um, sort of corporate money or money, companies making money, off of education. I mean, I, I get that, and I think that we should be sort of wary of corporate influence in our lives in general. But when we just look at technology companies as sort of the um, so the companies that are sort of guilty of this, I think that's sort of. I mean, I think that that's ludicrous. I mean, nobody nobody's angry about the the pencil manufacturers, right? Nobody's up in arms about um, you know the folks that make. Uh, you know the the basketball uh, you know basketball hoops for elementary schools. I mean, there's all sorts of ways in which private companies have always made money off of the education sector. It's a huge it's a huge part of our economy. But what is it? But what does it look like now when the revenue when the when you know government budgets are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, and we're seeing this influx of new um, new tools that, that could be procured or could be, you know, could be offered, um, who's going to pay and who's going to profit? Well, especially when a much larger portion of both the money and the concept of education are getting outsourced. I think that's maybe at the heart of the K-12 mm-hmm. uh, story right now because they really are doing so much of what we've traditionally considered to be sort of public domain candle lighting. right. Right. I mean, and I think that that's what makes, you know, the, it, I think that this makes this sort of a, such an important sector for folks to pay attention to and not just pay attention to, you know, education technology because sort of there's, you know, hot, new, exciting um, software that you can use in your classroom, but really think critically about, about what it's going to look like and how, you know, how, how technology is going to be reshaping some of these institutions, some of these interactions that we've long just sort of taken for granted. I want to propose two ideas, and I'm, I'll welcome your, feed, your pushback or feedback or those of our listeners. But one for me is that we're skipping a step when we go from tech to education. The technology for me typically transforms culture, and then culture transforms education. So I feel, I feel very weird about kind of this concept that tech is going to change education. The second one is that it seems to me that the educational technologists, those educators who are using technology are the are in the best place to understand the confluence of pedagogy and technology and we're not really looking to them. Hmm. I would say in response to your first piece that that uh, tech changes culture and culture changes education, I actually think that that's part of what we're seeing this year though. I think that particularly when it comes to the ubiquity of personal mobile devices, um, I think that that is I think that um, that's changing our culture, and I think that now education is definitely having to sort of um, recognize that um, everybody—I'll use that 
loosely, but pretty close to everybody has a cell phone, for example. I think that the opportunities for sort of 24-7 mobile learning are really here now, not because just because we have the tools, but because I think those tools have changed. They have changed our culture. They've changed the way we, which we think about um, um, information and access. I completely agree. Okay, so what's behind the change in the No Child Left Behind failure numbers? <laughs> I, uh, um, this, is, this is such. Are these a, the same guys who calculate unemployment rates? <laughs> I know. Well, earlier this, you know, earlier this year, Arnie Duncan said that eighty-two percent. So what? Four out of five American schools are are failing, um, and we're using note the you know the because they don't meet the, the standards of No Child Left Behind. And that's, it's, it's such a, I mean, it's sort of part of one of these larger sort of political um, education narratives of the last few years, this idea that schools, schools are failing. And so um, folks actually looked, um, the, the Center for Education Policy actually drilled down into um, the, whether or not states are meeting the requirements. And, and even more at more detail, like which schools where are failing to, to meet the requirements. And they, they found that it was just, just, just 48%, right? So less than half of schools actually are, are failing to, 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 to rise to these standards. But not surprisingly, these are, the, you know, these are, this isn't sort of blanket across, across the country. These are, um, uh, schools in low, um, you know, low income areas. These are, the schools that we already knew were in trouble. So Linda Darling Hammond is smiling right now as we begin to see the connection between poverty and exactly. academic achievement. So uh, SOPA, is this as scary as it seems to me? This uh, SOPA seems really scary to me. I mean, and I think that it's uh, there. There have, there's a, been a couple of um, episodes in recent years, both the Supreme Court and particularly. Um, the you know the legislature where I, I want to sort of shake these government officials and say to them you know it's really not okay that you don't understand the internet right you this we've got 2000 or almost 2012 here you need to know that the internet is not a series of tubes like that was cute you know maybe five years ago and funny but it's not it's not funny now and it's not funny when the government has in its power sort of this law the this um, piece of legislation that they're looking at right now that really could have such a such a devastating impact on the internet as as we know it. But luckily, Microsoft has started uh, a new <laughs> social network, Social S O dot C L. Isn't that cute? Which promises to transform the web and social networks into the new classroom. You know, <laughs> I just get goosebumps when I hear them use this language. I. Uh, you know, I bless Microsoft's heart. You know, I, 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 I don't even. I couldn't even think of anything <laughs> like to, to say or write about. I mean, you know, it, it is big news when a new when a company like Microsoft makes an academic social network. Uh, the edu as an education technology writer, I should I should cover the story. But man, I just I didn't really know what what to say. You can search. And you can share your searches with your friends. I don't know, Steve. It's pretty <laughs> stupid to me. 
Okay, and so sort of the final note for today, uh, the Nielsen report shows that mobile data usage is up. I don't think that's any great surprise. Uh, it shows that texting is still a hugely popular way of communicating for teens. Again, I didn't feel like a great surprise either. Was there more to the story that makes makes it valuable to us? I think it's interesting that we are seeing that, I mean, we've known for a long time that, that kids are uh, are fervent text messengers, and, and we aren't and that that continues to be the case, right? That, but what what is interesting, I think that the fact that they're using so much mobile data, because that that does mean that we're seeing a shift probably in the type of of phones that are in kids' hands, right? So these are phones that are that have internet access. Um, at the very least, even if it's a feature phone, it has some sort of data plan so that you can use the browser. Um, so I I think it's a shift in the kinds of um, devices that kids kids own. But also, I think it's interesting that even though they're using more data, they're still using text messaging to the same level. Um, that that they haven't all sort of sort of reached this uh, point where they're opting for um, messaging apps, for example. It's still the SMS, still text messaging that they're using to communicate. Isn't that interesting? One thing that occurred to me as I thought about that was that I actually have more control over sort of protecting my younger child through Verizon broadband on the mobile device than I do through my uh, home-based cable internet hookup. And I, that made, made me actually appreciate um, why some of us might be feeling okay about having our kids using mobile data. Do you mean, when you say, you mean like limits on the limits on what they can access or limits on the amount of data that they can gobble both, up? Both. Yeah. But, but in particular, you know, for a child under 13, um, you know, you actually have a pretty good ability, even well, even into the teen years, depending on what your parenting mm-hmm. perceptions are. You have a pretty good ability to actually make sure you feel comfortable with the data that's getting to their phone. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is going to be um, sort of, if I think about predictions for next year, I think that this is going to be one of the things that we're, we're going to start thinking about, too, um, particularly in terms of some of these filtering laws and um, access, you know, kids' ability to access um, content at schools. I have to wonder um, when they're bringing their own devices um, and their devices have data plans, what, how that's going to change, or if, if, if that'll change things. Fascinating. Audrey, it's always a pleasure. Yes, likewise. And I, I think we've just abandoned the half-hour format. I know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we did try one time, right? That one time. <laughs> too, too much, too good to talk about. Hey, you've done a terrific job this year. It was lovely to see the top 10 trends kind of close up. I'm sure that was an enormous amount of work, but I feel like you've added something really valuable to the larger discussions around educational technology, and I would like to thank you. Oh, thank you. It was. It's been great, and I've got... I've got um, some predictions for next year to make and uh, one more roundup post. And then, man, I am so done with 2011. (laughs) (laughs) Have a great weekend or have a great week, everybody. Take care. Bye. Bye.